This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk, and I welcome you. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join us at Talking Beats Podcast on social media to keep the conversation going. On today's program, Dr. Abraham Verghese, born in Ethiopia to Indian parents, he's renowned as physician, speaker, and writer, the author of many articles on medicine and its practices. His books include My Own Country, A Doctor's Story, Cutting for Stone, and The Tennis Partner. He received the National Humanities Medal in 2016 from President Obama, and throughout his career has made it a mission to find ways for doctors to be closer to their patients, even as technology has come to dominate every aspect of our lives. What did we lose when doctors stopped doing traditional physical examinations? Will house calls ever come back? The physician who brings his passion for medicine, people, and culture to the classroom as professor at Stanford University joins me, and I couldn't be happier to have him. Dr. Abraham Verghese, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Appreciate it. Humanism, art, medicine. Where does the passion, your passion, to bring them all together come from? Why isn't it good enough to just be a good doctor, meet patients, go home, and, and call it a day? Well, I don't think I've really invented something new. I think medicine has always been art and science. In fact, uh, one of the old terms for medicine was the ministry of healing. And so, you know, it's really hard to just focus only on disease. Uh, in fact, you'll go wrong a lot of the time if you do that. Uh, William Osler, the great granddaddy of American medicine who died about 1918, used to say that uh, it's not much use knowing what disease the patient has, it's much more important to know what patient has the disease. And I think that continues to be very true. So humanism, you know, is part of medicine. We don't always necessarily acknowledge it, but I think it's always there. Go into a little more depth about your thoughts about your patients. You've talked about before the 23 hours and I think 57 minutes during the day that, that the doctor's not there. What do you think about? What do you wonder about patients when you're not with them? Well, you know, I think that particular statement of mine, you know, um, comes from my own experience many years ago when I worked as a nursing assistant or orderly in a small hospital in New Jersey as I was sort of trying to find myself in America. And I remember at the time I wasn't, I wasn't particularly pleased about what I was doing because I was in between medical schools, displaced by war, having just come from Africa, trying to regroup. But I look back now and I think of it as the most profound medical training that I ever had because it really uh, allowed me to see what happens to the patient in the 23 hours and 57 minutes that doctors are not in the room. And it gave me a great sense of solidarity with, uh, with the nursing profession who really are the ones providing the care in the caring that people get in in hospitals. I think more than that, I think when you're in the room for that long, when you're seeing the patient for that long, you're much more tuned to the changes that are happening moment to moment with the patient. And I think one of the downsides perhaps of the modern medical system is that many of these entities function almost autonomously. They are the days of the nurse coming and rounding with the doctor are kind of rare, although we 
keep trying to do it. I mean, the nurses have their own sort of sets of duties and it's a little hard to herd people together and make the old-fashioned rounds. But I recall that um, the input from people like the nursing staff is profound in really telling us what's going on. More recently, I must tell you about an epiphany that I've been having watching telemedicine encounters. And, you know, we've been forced into this default of using video visits and our video visit rates have gone sky high which I suppose is a good thing for most of the time but many people approached it thinking that it was somehow lesser than and yet to my amazement you know as I look at patients and watch uh, you know a cat slink around across the screen or watch family members and children slink across the screen or realize that they're basically in a room without any privacy because they can't find privacy in their homes or worse they are they are you know in a car parked somewhere where they can get a a wireless signal you you really begin to feel embarrassed because for all these years we've paid lip service to the idea of uh, you know of of really understanding the social circumstances of the patient the whole patient but really we were doing this very artificial thing of having them come to us, you know, stripped of all their identity, come to our waiting rooms and then change into a a hospital gown or or an exam gown, which further sort of dehumanized them. So in an eerie way, I think because of COVID, we're getting a slightly better sense of who people really are in their own environment. And I think after COVID, we will no doubt continue to use some of these techniques and I think it makes it a strong case for our uh, starting the home visits once more as a, as a regular thing, as a way of really getting to know the patient, at least at the outset. You brought up so many things, but I uh, just have to say I had on recently Dr. Eric Topol, who I know you know well, and, and he spoke about how he's been so enjoying getting to see patients in their houses, getting to see, as you say, a, a cat run through the background. And I was talking to a friend recently who's who's a dean at a very well-known Ivy League school, and he said that he, contrary to what he thought, he he's found the faculty meetings have become such wonderfully warm <laughs> places over internet meetups, and uh, and it is very strange that I think a lot of what people expected that it would be more removed and less personal, everything is sort of flipped in a way, and yes, seeing people in their house on a couch. With a cat walking by, there's something really special there. Absolutely. And yet, even in those circumstances, we still need to make the connection. We still need to connect with the patient. It's something that I find a little easier to do in person, and especially the ritual of examining a patient. I'm a big believer in, you know, the bedside exam as being critically important. And it's become sort of something that's fallen by the wayside. People are less skilled at it, and yet... The body is giving you lots of clues and all you need to do is have the skill to read them. And I think we make a lot of errors in medicine from failing to read the body. So I don't want to uh, suggest by any means that telemedicine is the way to go. It certainly is one of the tools we're employing and finding, like so many things that we're doing in COVID, that um, you know it, it has attributes, as you mentioned with the faculty meetings, that will long outlast COVID. In fact, I'm struck by the fact uh, that, you know, we 
we are living through this narrative, the narrative of our lives, if you like, the story of our lives. You know, at one level, it's the personal story of how, of how each of us is trying to protect ourselves and, you know, uh, sheltering with our families. But in healthcare, it's also the story of a hospital like mine, you know, planning for 20% attrition of the of the hospital staff or 40% attrition, you know. It's the sort of story that... Uh, you know, it's hard to hard to have truly prepared for, and it has echoes to me of uh, all stories, but especially stories like, for example, Gilgamesh or Beowulf or or even Jaws, which happened to be one of the first movies that I saw when I first came to America. And you have this monster appearing out of the you know out of the sea, and it's terrorizing a community. And as with Gilgamesh, as with Beowulf, what you need is a hero to step forward and and repurpose tools, uh, find new weapons and these are ordinary people who heed the calling and then they go with faith and with the sense that this is the right thing to do and battle the monster and you know typically the reward for that isn't just you know winning the hand of the princess or being allotted land in the kingdom and this and that Typically, there's a transformation, a transcendence uh, that also takes place. And I'd like to think that all these things you're describing, the telemedicine visits, the faculty meetings, we will take away a different way of being. It won't be simply we defeat the virus and we go back to, you know, where we were. Uh, you know, Gilgamesh goes on to great things. Wolf goes on to different things. So we are going to be transformed. And I think the ending of the story is yet to be written. You know, it's so interesting you mention the apprehension of using the expression go back to where we were, because it's something, especially earlier on, I heard a lot. I can't wait till things get back to normal. And I always told people, I said, I really don't think things will go back to how they were. I think maybe it will feel less crazy at some point. Obviously, we hope sooner than later, but if you take the field of live music. I've spent my whole life in classical music. There's no going back. There's no switch that you turn on and suddenly everybody's thrilled to pack into a hall of 3,000 people and 100 people on stage in the orchestra. It's, it's going to be a very difficult, slow process. Yes, but I still hope that we get the chance to hear you live and in person, uh, even though we are all enjoying performances online. I, I think, think what, what we probably need to remind ourselves is that even when it was, quote, normal, it was really far from normal. It was uh, the illusion of things being static when, in fact, they were incredibly dynamic. I mean, I, I look at the, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement and the massive awakening that's taken place and yet, in a funny way, it's a, it's an old story. I, I hate to quote Mitch McConnell, but I, I like the way he said, this is our original sin, you know, from um, whenever it was, uh, um, you know, the first slave ship docked on our, on our shores. We are still dealing with that, and we've made progress with this amendment and that amendment. But, you know, clearly, we had not come far enough, and the normal that we're looking to go back to was hardly uh, desirable, I would say, given the light in light of our our new epiphanies. So things have been changing all around us, and I think uh, our our effect on the environment, our deforestation, our 
other efforts are putting us in contact with viruses like this one and without a doubt there will be more down the pike hopefully not in my lifetime or yours but some of this is very predictable and so normal has never been normal I would argue take us back to what used to be considered normal which is the physical exam I, I want you to put a finer point on that because just from my personal experience I think a lot of people around my age can remember I'm a, a middle-aged millennial I would say so so even when I was a kid I remember the doctor coming in with a stethoscope with the the hammer that that he banged under the kneecap to test the reflexes uh, excuse the lack of proper terminology with the with the feeling physical feeling with the personal feeling I enjoyed the doctor as a person I liked talking to him I felt he understood me as a child as I was growing older going through the grades I'm a very healthy person, knock on wood, so I don't interact much with doctors in person these days, but what's happened? If I went for a, a physical, how physical would it be, Dr. Verghese? Yeah, I think there's no reason that the physical shouldn't be exactly what you remember from your childhood, because it remains a fairly high-yield procedure. There are certain things, for example, all of dermatology and a good bit of physical medicine, you know, uh, and neurology, where you really can't tell what the functional deficit is without examining the patient. You might have a beautiful CAT scan and MRI that shows a clot in this place or a, uh, or a lesion somewhere else, but to, to, to understand what the consequence of that is, you really have to put the patient through their paces. So I've been a long-term advocate of the physical exam for that very simple reason that when you don't examine the patient, you make glaring and embarrassing errors and this is happening, by the way, every day in every hospital. And I think it's exacerbated by COVID because now we have one more barrier to make it harder to examine the patient. But I've also learned, um, interestingly, that there's more to the exam than just the reading of the body's clues. Uh, and this perhaps has some analogy to your, uh, your, your, your own field of work. There is an important ritual that is taking place here. And I confess I only understood this when I had a chance to reflect on some of my experience with patients with chronic fatigue who you know they used to come to us typically they'd come to me with a lot of baggage on their shoulders a, a, you know a sense that I was going to join the long line of physicians who had disappointed them who had shortchanged them who didn't believe them because their families didn't believe them and friends didn't believe them and I remember learning early on that I would need to give them all the time in the world to tell me their stories which were incredibly long sometimes it required a whole visit just to hear it and then I would schedule a second visit for the physical exam and I remember that you know in my first or second encounter with such a patient that this very voluble patient continued to have story to tell me and so I decided to just launch into my exam because that was our understanding and a very interesting thing happened. This voluble patient began to quiet down, and I had a eerie sense that I had stumbled into, you know, a, 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 a pas de deux, if you like, a, um, um, a, a dance between me and the patient, an ancient ritual in which I had a role and the patient had a role. And when I was all done, the patient said to me with some awe, I have never been examined like this before, which if that were true, is a real 
condemnation of our medical system because they've been seen many other places and this is what we're supposed to do although I think these days many people just you know tick off boxes that suggest they did the right moves but didn't necessarily do it what did you do that was so special was anything special to you no, it sounds like it sounds like this was a, an otherworldly experience to you it was you doing a good job uh, examining physically i was just doing a good job examining physically and perhaps in these patients it was more pertinent and i didn't quite understand understand this till i had a discussion with my anthropology colleagues here at stanford and they just stopped me mid mid anecdote if you like and they said abraham you're describing a ritual and they taught me that we engage in rituals to signal a transformation a crossing of a threshold you know, your graduation, your bar mitzvah, your baptism, your marriage. Each of these events uh, are rituals that signal a transformation. And they pointed out, if you think about it, that, you know, one stranger coming to see another stranger and telling them, especially in my specialty, infectious disease, telling them things they would never tell their, uh, their spouse or rabbi. And then all this is taking place in a room that, doesn't look anything like you know your living room or mine with strange furniture and then in the middle of this ritual and incredibly one member of the dyad disrobes and allows touch which in any other context in you know in daily life is assault and yet through the privileged you know uh, relationship fiduciary relationship we have with the patient we are granted this skilled touch and so you know if you do it with skill if you do it with uh, some some real discernment and if you do it smoothly i mean if you watch if i were to watch you play a cello or if i were to watch uh, a, a novice play a cello i believe that just watching you i would probably be able to discern that you've been doing this a, a long time and your technique and your 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 skills are superior to the novice all of this matters, and I think if you do a physical exam well, even if it's the same thing the student's doing, you bring about a transformation. And you're doing another thing. You're actually saying this disease, this disorder, is situated on your body. You are sort of, you're signaling the entity on the body rather than the disease belonging in some image in an x-ray or a lab report or something. I think we all need this sort of... Uh, um, you know, step. And so I think the exam is, you know, important for the sake of that acknowledgement by one human being on, on another. I hate to use the word laying hands because that is really hokey. But I do think this kind of privileged, informed, intelligent skill touch is as important in this context as it is, for example, in your, in your life performance. So I'm a big believer in, in that, that means of connection with another human being i love the description you've been giving uh, the interaction the, the the intimacy the the allowed intimacy and and it, in a way it makes me sad that that so many people in this country will never have the privilege to to be touched by a skilled caring doctor who has expertise in time well i wouldn't want to suggest that you know i'm unique in doing this i think this is really what we're meant to do and i think you hit on the magic word which is time you know we are not really reimbursed in american medicine for doing that sort of thing we are actually discouraged from it in terms of the pressure to 
digest all the data the patient comes with and the, the pressure to sort of get them through. I mean, it's ironic in American medicine that you're reimbursed generously for doing things to people such as sticking needles in them or procedures. But, you know, when you have an elderly patient who needs a half an hour to tell you their story and who needs the careful exam, even if there's nothing dramatic you're going to uncover, but it's an important part, part of their feeling, you know, that they're, they're connecting with you, and then you really lost something. I want to mention something to do with placebo that relates to this, if I may, uh, and that is that, you know, we're used to the idea of placebo being, you know, something that you trick a patient with, but I think that's a very false notion. We're learning that there's so much more to placebo that if I give you a placebo in a post-operative setting for pain, in the 30% of patients who will respond to that placebo, that inert substance, you can actually actually measure a neurochemical change in their brain. You can actually measure chemicals that are being poured out. Uh, and then if you take those same patients and you use a, a morphine antagonist, the pain will come roaring back. So in other words, placebo, when it works, is real. And uh, there are researchers now who have coined the term placebo without a placebo, meaning that the tone of voice, the setting, the context, the exam, all of these things have the ability to produce just as much effect uh, as a placebo. And that's not a small thing. And so the anecdote that you began with about your childhood memory of a physician and the, just the way you've talked about it suggests to me that no matter what you had, that physician was already exerting a healthy, necessary 30% placebo effect that, you know, is profound. That's so fascinating. I wonder, can we ever get the time back? You said before that, in a sense, you'd love to be able to go to someone's house when this is all over, go to a patient's house, do a house call. It sounds like hearkening back to a, a wonderful world that's, that's so anti-corporate and anti-computer and anti-digital. It's an analog experience. Will that ever happen, doctor? Well, I don't think it has to be, you know, one extreme or the other. I mean, I'm practicing at Stanford. I'm, you know, thrilled to be, you know, practicing really cutting-edge medicine with the most marvelous, mind-boggling technology around. But you still need, I think, this sort of human element of really getting to know the patient. And there's no reason to bring all these things to bear. But I think what it will take to reshape medicine is very much healthcare reform. You know, to the degree that you have it based on procedures and, you know, our medical students, you know, they're not, they're not naive. They come out, you know, they come into medicine full of altruism and wanting to do all these things for the world. But the reality is that they come out with a lot of debt and they look around and realize that if they're in primary care, they're going to be worked to the bone and make maybe one twentieth of what you know, a, a, an interventionist or a surgeon or a dermatologist might make. And, you know, for them to have these economic considerations on their minds is really a failing of our system. So I'd like to think that we, because of COVID, because of the number of people who are disenfra disenfranchised, uninsured, jobless, that we will come around to the sense that we need to be able to provide uh, health care for all, whatever way you want to phrase it, Medicaid expansion, it, it, it really doesn't matter. You need to be able to give families the ability not to be, you know, further bankrupted by 
the most minor medical catastrophe that comes their way. Um, so that's my bias. Do you ever see a time when you yourself will, one day when the virus is, is kept at bay, when you're comfortable going out and meeting people in person, do you ever see the day when you will say to your staff or to colleagues, I'm committing to seeing 10% of my patients in home or 5% or 20%? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is something we can definitely do. I mean, I'm largely these days more of a in-hospital physician, so I don't do that much outpatient medicine. But when I did in the AIDS era, I was very involved in the HIV epidemic. I made a lot of home visits, but in retrospect, they were all towards the end of life. They were all happening at a time when it was, you know, very fraught. But I could see where if we really want to do justice to patients, and I've actually heard of pediatricians who do this, Uh, before they take on a new patient, they will visit them in their home and get to know the child and the family. And that saves all kinds of time, you know, going forward because they, you know, are not just dealing with a sore throat. They're dealing with a sore throat in, you know, a little Bob who's got all these siblings. You know, they just have a much better organic sense for the patient. I would argue that it saves money to do that. So I do think that we will think of the home as a, ancillary clinic, if you will, and rather than just having a video camera for the patient, we'd also give them tools with some wearable technology, some measurable technology, some other remote instrumentation that allows us to better, you know, examine them, so to speak, or at least get some soundings on them while we're doing these televisits. So I think there's a lot of wonderful change to come, uh, you know, under this rubric of home visits. You mentioned the HIV-AIDS epidemic. This is something that shaped you as a person, your experiences. Can you talk about what you've called the conceit of cure and bring us back, Dr. Verghese, if you will, to rural Tennessee and the shaping of your views on humanism, on personal interaction, medicine, and sometimes the powerlessness of a doctor? Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, that was a very strange time, but one that, as you said, really shaped me and informed my life. I mean, I was trained in infectious disease, and one of the reasons that I picked that and not, say, cardiology or some other specialty was I love the idea of being able to see patients with problems in every organ system and across every group, from kids to, you know, pregnant women and so on. But I also liked the fact that It seemed to me at the time before HIV, the one specialty where you could make an astute diagnosis and apply the right treatment and the patient would walk away like Lazarus. And then HIV came along, which was really cruel because all of us caught up in this conceit of cure were now dealing with a fatal illness in young men who were our age. And it was really quite humbling. And I remember my my particular epiphany of understanding the difference between curing and healing came from a home visit, paradoxically. I remember I had a young man who was getting increasingly frail and sick, and there came a point when he could no longer come to clinic. I had looked at the roles, and there he was supposed to come that day. But his mother called to say he was too weak to come, and yet he wasn't really acutely sick to, you know, to be taken to the hospital. And it just didn't sit well with me because I thought I would not see this guy again if I didn't make some effort. And so I drove out at the end of my day to his house out in the countryside. And I remember thinking, 
I was doing this for my purposes, not so much for him, but for my sense of this being somehow inconclusive. And when I got to the house, I found that my visit, even though I'd gone there for my purposes, I found that my visit had a profound effect on him, that it had a profound effect on the family, that it was helping them to come to terms with this illness. It was helping them realize that I would not abandon them, that I was still involved. And when I left the house, I remember looking out on that pastoral landscape and thinking, wow, this is what the horse and buggy doctor of several hundred years ago did so effectively. Uh, They could not cure, but they could heal, by which I mean helping the patient to come to terms with the illness. And the analogy I use with my medical students, because this can sound pretty hokey, this um, healing versus curing business, but the analogy I use with my medical students is I say to them, imagine that you've just come home after a long day of class to your apartment and you find that the door is open, even though you locked it. The lock is in splinters. You walk through your house and discover that all your belongings have been scattered about and all your valuables are gone uh, you you would experience a great sense of loss not just the physical loss of immensely valuable stuff to you personally valuable but also a loss in the sense of a spiritual violation someone came into your sacred space and without permission and stole and if the police come by an hour later and say We caught the person who did this. Here is all your stuff back. At that moment, you will be cured, but you will not be healed. In other words, your physical violation would be fixed, your loss of stuff. However, your sense of spiritual violation might be so great that you actually decide to move from that apartment building. And I think all physical illness has that quality. There's always this you know, measurable physical loss, whether it's a broken bone or uh, or something else. But there's always a sense of, why me, why now? And I think we in Western medicine have not done a great job of addressing that sense of spiritual violation. We've just assumed that if we fix the problem, that'll take care of itself. And I think much of what we're talking about now, about, you know, healing, home visits, the physical exam, these are ways to address that sense of the spiritual violation of illness, which in diseases like HIV and cancer are particularly profound, uh, that, that sense of violation. I hate to ask what happened to the patient in Tennessee, but clearly he left lasting impact on you. And, and it's obvious that, that you left his house after that first home visit, a different person than you arrived. And I'm assuming that he and his family did too. So whatever you said, whatever you did, or just your presence... Yeah, I think, you you know, I don't want to overstate my influence on him. You know, it was still a miserable, sad situation because he knew he was going to die. But I do think at some level there was some comfort in that visit. And had I not visited, I think it would have felt even more isolating. But yes, I think the effect was much more profound on me, I'd like to think, than necessarily on him. Talk about comforting music. You knew I was going to ask you about music because I always do on this show. <laughs> no matter who the guest is, what do you like to listen to? It must be something. Well, you know, it's uh, it's funny that you should ask because I have my two boys who returned home, uh, one from college and one from a 
uh, a wonderful job, you know, uh, helping set up musical performances in Santa Fe. And so at last count, we have 11 guitars and seven amplifiers at home. But unfortunately, <laughs> my taste in music is quite different from theirs. I used to play bass guitar in a band, and I, like most bass guitarists, I'm also an aspiring lead guitarist. So I love the blues, which they don't care for. And I think what I love about the blues is I like the form of it. I love the simplicity of it, and I love how within that form, I think very much like formal poetry, you know, there are limitless ways that you can exploit the form. So that is a lot of what I listen to, which doesn't mean that I don't enjoy classical music and, uh, and other things. But uh, when I play, that's what I like to play. Not at all. Sometimes people who come on think that I only want to hear their taste in classical music. Uh, not not at all. There was uh, the ambassador, Dennis Ross, was on recently, and, and he, he said, I have to confess I love country music more than anything. <laughs> he said, don't tell anybody. I said, sure. <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was thinking of the, uh, your answer about the blues. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a wonderful, he's, he's not at all related to American blues, but, but there's some uh, deep uh, connection that I hear, speaking about Ethiopia, where you grew up. Mulato Astatke, is this a musician you're familiar with, the wonderful Ethiopian, I guess jazz musician, I would say? Yeah, the Ethiopian music is uh, quite unique. I must say that I, I, I can recognize Ethiopian music right away. And it's, it was only later when I became a little more sophisticated about, you know, all the different uh, sorts of scales and, you know, that I recognize that they're, they're using a, a fairly unique uh, their own version of a pent their own pentatonic scale, if you like, that's so unique that it's you know it's got a signature to it that they, their most common instrument is called a krar, which is basically I think a five stringed instrument that is not fretted; they just strum it. But even those notes, and I wish I could be more sophisticated for you about what that what that particular mode is uh, but I'm afraid I can't maybe you can tell me uh, <laughs> no no problem and uh, no problem I will uh, research and get back to you I'm I'm not I'm not sure I can speak uh, with any authority on this part of music what what blues artists do you like uh so I like a, a great variety of artists but again leaning more towards guitar um I love BB King I think that you know as cliched as some of his riffs might be, and it's very popular for, you know, younger musicians, I think, to say, ah, you know, that's passé. I challenge them to produce the kind of vibrato that he would produce. I challenge them to, you know, with the slightest nuance, express such feeling. So I love his kind of, um, you know, expressive lead guitar. But I'm, but, but I'm also... A great fan of, uh, you know, many other kinds of music. Fela Ransom Kuti, I don't know if you know that name, the Nigerian musician, very rhythmic. I love his work. Uh, I love George Benson. So it's too long a list, perhaps, uh, and you've got me on, put me on the spot because I wasn't sh expecting this right away. <laughs> Dr. Verkis, we didn't get a chance to talk a lot about the virus. It came up here and there. Obviously, this is a situation that's changing every day. So something you, you could say today could not even be applicable a week from now. But overarchingly, if you step back, if you look at what's happening and you combine it with your deep knowledge of history, with your knowledge of the U.S. medical community, the knowledge of the world medical community, how concerned are you where things stand now going into early fall? Yeah, I'm actually quite concerned. I'm also, you know, really uh, sad that we haven't absorbed the lessons of history, of humanism, 
because in many ways this is not a virus. I mean, we talk about the virus exploiting. The virus is doing nothing of the sort. It just reproduces by attaching to a receptor and, you know, is happy to find receptors. The the human element of this is an old story. I mean, if you read any of the narratives of the plague, uh, everything that's happening now, uh, Camus and Defoe and everybody else has already described, you know, these sort of divisions within society, the litmus test of people who line up this way and that way, the heroic figures who step forward. Uh, I don't think there's really, uh, on the human side, a bigger disease than ignorance. Uh, there really is no evil. I think so much of the you know, bad behavior is really about not truly being willing to or understanding what's going on. So I think, you know, the, the great failure in the response to the virus has been a failure that could have been avoided by simply insisting that our leaders, you know, be aware of history and be steeped in humanism enough to understand what to expect. And I don't think I've seen a lot of that. Uh, conversely, what's tremendously exciting compared to, say, the HIV era is the pace of scientific discovery. I mean, every single day, and I'm much more in favor of reading my scientific journals than looking at the headlines, every single day there are breakthroughs in science that will help us, uh, you know, for decades to come. And so even if we haven't quite tackled this problem yet, uh, look at all the vaccines that are already in trials, uh, and I feel much more confident than I did say in February that if I got sick, there's much more that can be offered me, even if I can't, if, even if we can't prevent it with a vaccine just yet. And so, at every level, from the ICU to the uh, step-down unit, I think we're just seeing progress in how we're tackling how we're tackling these patients. I'm not optimistic in the same way about the societal response. I mean, this is the science I'm talking about, but at the societal level, I think the fall will make it uh, harder because we will be more indoors. There will be more influenza uh, to go along with this COVID. And I think in the absence of a systematic uh, you know, policy uh, in place of the current uh, you know, cacophony of, uh, uh, of chaos that's coming from the powers that be at every level, from the FDA, the CDC, uh, the White House. It's just been quite disappointing that they cannot coordinate their efforts better. At no loss to them, it seems to me. And uh, so for many of us, uh, this is not a political statement. It's just more an observation that we could do this a lot, lot better. Dr. Abraham Verghese, I want to thank you very much for your wisdom and insights both. You're very welcome. A pleasure to talk to you. And uh, good luck with your future podcast. Uh, my honor to be a guest. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Alchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Alchuk. See you next time.